Hello, I'm Pete Cooper, and welcome to the first episode of a brand new nature conservation podcast, What is Rewilding Anyway? Rewilding is a concept undoubtedly here to stay. Within conservation circles, it's a bold new method that is suggested to reverse declines in wildlife that previous efforts have failed to curb. To those outside this field, it can be seen as either an exciting gateway into a wilder world, or something far more unknown and even threatening. No one's quite sure what. The root cause of a lot of this seems to be an identity problem. Since becoming a buzzword, different people and groups have cherry-picked the use of the term for a varied spectrum of ideologies. Does it mean ecological restoration with no human input? Does it mean trying to bring back a landscape of the past or something altogether new? And does it include reintroductions of lost species, such as beaver or wolf, by default? Over the course of the series, these and other questions will be discussed by a number of practitioners, proponents and critics of rewilding from across the country, all in the hope of finding at least some form of answer to the million-pound question, what is rewilding anyway? In this first episode, I spoke to ecologist, farmer and reintroduction specialist Derek Gow. I've known Derek for four years, having been involved from a voluntary angle with projects in captive breeding and reintroduction of species such as waterfowl, beaver and white stork, all based at his farm on the Devon Cornwall border. It was during our lunch break on a rainy day's work, as is standard of somewhere close to Dartmoor, that we sat down to discuss the complexities of rewilding. Well, my background is I started work when I left school. I worked for five years in agriculture. Um, then I went into environmental education and from there on in, and completely by chance, I became involved in running three British wildlife um, centres, British wildlife zoos, which finished in 2003, at which point in time I decided to work for myself and I've worked on a variety of different um, native mammal conservation projects ever since. We also farm about 300 acres here um, in Devon, um, you're in plain view of Dartmoor, um, where in the past, you know, on rented land as well, we've run about, you know, 1,000 sheep and about 120 supper cows. So Derek, um, as a farmer, as well as someone actively involved in the reintroduction of beavers, uh, waterfowls and soon to be white stalks to landscape, how do you think this ties into the wider view of creating a better nature for Britain? I think we have to start thinking very carefully about what we're going to do. We live in a time and a place in history where, you know, Britain is 133rd, is it, you know, ranked in, you know, landscapes with biodiversity worldwide. It's not good, you know, you look at the State of Nature report and things are not getting any better. And, you know, we live in a landscape where within, you know, living memory, things like, you know, birds like curlews with the, the sound of the spring wheeling and, and plaintively crying in the sky, the sky above us, and they've all gone. And what we've done is we've created something, yes, it's green, but it's more or less increasingly now becoming a biological desert. And we need to get people to think about this. But one of the huge problems we have now is that, of course, you know, with, with different distractions, you know, with different um, your forms of multimedia, you know, increasingly what you've got are very many people who go home at night and instead of worrying about the environment or worrying about their allotment or worrying about anything that's real, maybe even their children, you know, they go home at night, put on a set of goggles and, um, you know, pretend they own a spaceship in the sky. 
So, you know, we've actually got to get to the stage where we start to look at projects that are going to catch people's imagination that they can't ignore, that are so loud, so noisy, so spectacular, that they've got to look at these things again, these wonders of nature, and think, well, actually, that is quite interesting. And that really is, you know, to a huge extent, what the White Store Project's about. It's a big, gregarious bird from the past. They were hunted and killed. Their habitat was destroyed in England maybe one and a half thousand years ago. And we want to start, in conjunction with project partners, like the Netcastle Estate, to... Um, to um, to restore this bird as a breeding bird in Britain, not particularly because we want to reintroduce storks, but because we want something out there in the landscape that, that wheels down from the sky, returns every spring, nests in the roofs of your schools, your churches, your, your homes, your community centres, blocks your, your gutters up with shit, you know, wakes you up at four o'clock in the morning with this bill clattering display, and by God, you cannot ignore it. So having worked with you for several years now, uh, I know very well about the involvement uh, and the hard work that's gone into bringing beavers back into the UK landscape. While it's certainly sort of hot stuff now, previously it was a lot more difficult. In fact, almost seemed as possible with nature conservation circles. What do you think has been a key factor in allowing the current situation to happen and what future do you think we have for beavers in particular, species in the UK? I think there are a number of key factors. One is that you have to demonstrate determination. And I think sufficient individuals involved in the Beaver Project, you know, both people who work for the statutory nature conservation organisations like Martin Kaywood of SNH, but equally others like, you know, Paul Ramsey, who, who kept beavers for many years and as a state in the tea, have shown considerable determination and uh, you know, to see this thing from, from end to, 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 to the place where we are now, you know, i.e. the animal living in reasonable numbers in the wider landscape. That process hasn't always been conventional. Of course, you know, beaver populations have appeared in the River Otter and indeed are now present in other parts of, of England, Wales and Scotland where they, in theory, shouldn't be. But, but the whole thing has gathered so much momentum now that it's unstoppable. We're not going to be able to remove these animals from the landscape. Yes, I suppose technically, physically, it's possible if the government committed its considerable resource. But at the end of the day, you would do this against the will of the people who, who have such an interest in this. So I think determination has been one of the things. I think it's been events, you know, so for example, the thing that was a game changer that changed everything was the beaver population developing in the Tay. It's a huge population, it's vast, it's spread through a landscape which reaches from the, the, the virtually the far west coast of Scotland to the estuary of the Tay in the east. And, and like a lump, it's no longer a case of, you know, if we're going to have beavers on this island, it's only a case of, you know, how long it takes them to get where they're going to be. So. I think that's good, and I think the idea was set as a bunch of pious farts in nature conservation, you know, cuddling our IUCN guidelines and wringing our hands when anything that steps off the, the, the lines uh, that are written down in there happens is ridiculous. We made the silly rules, we wrote the silly guidelines. When it comes to it, if we want to change them, of course we can change them, all we need to do is get some tipex. So at the end of it all, it's, you know, that's also played its um, part in it, but the, the most inspirational um, thing with regard to beavers is that for very many years when we were involved in the beginning, the meetings that were had with regard to this happening or not happening were held in closed rooms. And they were held by people who really, in the main, did not want to see it happen. And bad decisions were made, decisions which distorted science, distorted truth, and which gave most of the people on this island who had an interest in this issue no voice at all. And then when you get to the stage where those people who bear in mind pay their taxes and support the other land use industries and whatever else they do, um, sometimes, you know, in, in times when their own lives are incredibly hard, when their own, you know, societies and communities and, and industries are collapsing. They have no option in that. Those people that have no voice 
started to find a voice. And when you asked them what they thought, they said, we want these animals to be there. Old people said it, young people said it, the politicians said no. But in the end, the, the, the people who said yes absolutely overwhelmed in response to any political bleat of no. So I think there are some really interesting things that have happened with this. I think we're, it's going to quite obviously be something that, that can't be put in the box now. It's going to be something that, that becomes increasingly common. And the, the scientific case for it, which was always excellent, you know, based on the available evidence from Europe and North America, you know, combined with studies that have now been undertaken in Britain, shows you that these animals are hugely supportive when it comes to restoring um, biomass, biodiversity to, to the wider landscape and landscapes that are dead, they literally breathe life back into them. So, you know, and that combined with, you know, their, their ability to, to slow the flow of water, you know, uh, create landscapes that they basically release water slowly in summer to, um, to dissipate droughts, to, you know, purify water, you know, so the nitrates that go into beaver generated landscapes don't come out, the phosphates that go in don't come out, just makes uh, the, the restoration of this animal a no-brainer. Sure, there are some people who are going to say, well, they're going to affect our game fish and they're going to jump up and down, huffing and puffing in the tweed suits, you know, perhaps until their bamboo fishing rod breaks in their grasp. But at the end of the day, you've got to look at these selfish old farts and think, well, hey, wait a minute. You know, what's more important here is that you catch a big fish one day or, or that the rest of the life that revolves around these animals, you know, is actually returned to a landscape that's largely dead. And of course, at the end of the day, we now know that the beavers are not inimical to, 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 to game fish migration and that what they're talking is absolutely complete and utter nonsense anyway. So. Mm. So obviously with reintroduction as a key focus, uh, within the context of this podcast with the theme of rewilding or whatever rewilding is, reintroductions can go from fairly mild basis from, say, the white stalks here, to those who may want to think of uh, bigger fish to fry, namely large carnivores. How do you think you balance reintroductions and the future of nuclear conservation and rewilding as a whole you know, with the rewilding argument and those who may wish to see them or those who may wish not to see them? Well, to be quite honest, you have to start at the beginning of this. In, in, in Britain, we are crap at running reintroductions. What we focus on are small bees and ants and wasps and, and I don't know, maybe you know, a dormouse or two. And, you know, be, I read an article the other day and, and, and in practice which suggested the dormouse was a, a, a symbol of rewilding in Britain. And you look at that and think, <laughs> is this a joke? And I mean, you look at an animal that has you know, really little ecological significance, is largely inert for six months, is harmless, benign, and at the end of it all, uh, really almost ineffectual. And I mean, what does that say? If you know, we use that as a, a, an example of rewilding, is that where we're coming from? <laughs> if the answer is yes, then it's laughable. So I think we are not good at this. If, uh, and we are not really re yet ready to start doing ambitious things. I mean, the beaver stuff may come. And if the beaver stuff can be, you know, comes, then there are two ways it will work. One is it will be cautious and slow. Or two is the government will gird up its loins and do what's right and say we are going to turn these out in numbers. And that, for us, is an all-time first because we've never, ever done anything like that before. When it comes to, to so therefore, to large carnivores, then you're looking at you know, animals that have been gone from this island for arguably, you know, four, three, four hundred years, maybe not that long in the case of the wolf, but animals that, you know, when they were present here, certainly in the case of the wolf, you know, we understood very well, you know, every rural community's sinews were bent to the destruction of that animal. You know, if they, they appeared in a parish, you called up a hue and cry. If you didn't call up a hue and cry, you were fined. If you didn't turn out for hunts, you were fined. Everything that society could do was done to destroy that animal. And yet it survived until relatively recent times. 
The systems of livestock production we have in Britain are not geared to large predators at all. So sheep are put out in fields. Fields are surrounded by things that are called fences. If there are people called shepherds left, and there aren't many of them, and then they sure as hell are not going to be watching their flocks by now or sleeping out beside them in big smocks to protect them from large carnivores. Those are guys that are going to be whizzing around, you know, one and a half thousand sheep in a quad bike, hoping they're going to be done in, 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 in an hour top so they can get on with the other work they've got to do. And, and their employers are not going to turn around and look at these guys and say, I'll tell you what, we'll just employ two of you when we're making no money from those sheep and by employing one of you. So there are all sorts of issues, but if you say that, well, the sheep are the issue, then what you've, you've also got to bear in mind is that they're, they're overgrazing and nibbling and stripping of the uplands, is that when you address those sheep, and in Scotland there are very many areas, you're seeing the sheep going from the mountains, and, 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 that, and that process of the sheep going accelerating away. But when you see that accelerating away, what then happens is that the red deer and the other deer species rise in numbers to destroy the forests that could once be, you know, again in the future. So I think in the end we'll have to start looking at large predators. I think it will come. I think it's going to require much from us. It will require huge political courage. And politicians <laughs> in their very short terms of office are not people that really generally show much political courage. What they do is they shuffle bits of paper around and try to make no decisions at all. And something like reintroducing the wolf would be, you know, that would be a, an interesting decision to make. But in the end, I don't think we'll ever get away from it. I, you know, if we want to actually have an environment that starts to recover at all, we have to deal with herbivores. And, and dealing with the wild herbivores that rise, you know, when the domestic herbivores go, there's going to be a significant problem. You need something that's really going to scare the living crap out of them. And the thing that would do that is a wolf. So I think it's, it is something that we need to start talking about, but I don't think it'll be deliverable in this lifetime. <laughs> So Derek, every podcast uh, will finish on the, the overarching question uh, of the series as a whole, and that is, what is rewilding anyway? So what is your definition of rewilding? Well, my definition of rewilding is quite simple. What I'm looking at with the projects we run here is, is, is a species that can be slotted back into a landscape and with a reasonable degree of tolerance, they can re-exist in a landscape where we destroy them. Unless you own huge amounts of land, it's very difficult to see how you're going to progress with anything much more than that. If you look at, for example, the Ostvardersplassen in the Netherlands, which is the most remarkable project, 6,000 hectares of what was the bed of the North Sea, restored as a green lung for Amsterdam and Almira, um, you know, with herds of feral cattle, um, you know, feral horses, red deer, um, you know, bird life revolving around it and, and, and reshaping and reforming in a way that's inspirational. That is run by the state. It's funded by the state. And I can assure you that when you look at the, you know, the broken, weak creature that, that is, you know, respectively Natural England, the Natural Resources Wales, and to an extent, a lesser extent, SNH, none of those organisations have that kind of ability. None of them would be supported in that aspiration by government. So at the end of it all, I think unless you're going to look at something like Charlie Burrell's place where you've got an estate making a perfectly clear case for saying, well, look, I've taken this land out, land out of dairy and out of arable, and on the back of that I now have more people that, you know, working in the, um, the, the farmsteads and the workshops around here than, pardon me, they were in the 16th century, then you have a blueprint that's very interesting. Um, but to do that, what you have to do is you have to look at the people that are there at the moment when you start to, to repossess the tenant farms and you have to say, well, look, there is a bright future for people on this landscape. There are going to be many more people on this landscape. But if you're not versatile from an agricultural point of view, it's not going to be you. So 
there are issues with that. And, and just to finish on it, you know, in the time I've been in to do with rewilding and beavers, you know, I've met so many mystics, so many people that say we can do this, we can do that. And, and I have to say that, you know, the vast majority of them just talk complete and utter trash. They have no understanding and no respect for, for the other land use communities at all. In their silly protestations, all they do is, is, is basically, um, you know, alienate um, people that we really need to have dialogues with. I think, you know, it is possible to see a future where some of this could start to come, but it's going to have to come through dialogue with people that own the land. And there's going to have to be a reason for them doing it. And in the end, that's going to boil down to the harsh economics of, of, of a climate which is going to become difficult. So if you're a farmer and you can see that, you know, you've got an area of rewilded land in the middle of your estate and it becomes a, a USP and you've got, you know, your het cattle there and, you know, scrub reforming and singing linnets and, you know, streams full of water voles or, or and beavers creating wet dams and wetlands, well, that's something you're probably going to have to put in place. But you're going to do that if... There's an incentive to do so because you've got a caravan park, you've got an art gallery, you've got, you know, you've got pods, you have bird watching, you have a whole range of other things that are going to bring in an income. And if you can't bring that income in, then just sitting on your hands somewhere in a lonely flat in London saying you want to see the southern uplands rewilded is just is just a fool's errand. So at the end of it all, you know, I think you have to be aware of mystics. Derek, thank you very much. No problem. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode coming soon. For further instalments and related articles, follow my blog at PeteCooperWildlife.com and on Twitter at PeteMRCooper.